Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. In the early 2000s, um, there was this, if you were a youth group kid like I was, uh, there was this band that was causing quite the stir because all the youth group kids listened to them, but they also, they also got played on the top 40 radio stations. And that band was called Switchfoot. And uh, some of you are familiar, maybe your kids were into them, maybe you went to their concerts or saw them live at a church event. Um, and I want to focus on one particular song and tell you about one particular song of theirs um, this morning that, that didn't have the quite the universal appeal of some of their other music. It's a little deep cut of theirs, but it gets to the heart of what I want to talk about today. It's not their best song. It's not lyrically subtle in any serious way, um, because the, the song title is Happy is a Yuppie Word. Happy is it's a very silly song title, and the very first line of the song is um, "Everyone dies." So you know they're not you know tell us how you really feel, Switchfoot. I mean, come on, right? But this whole song is about a secular life being meaningless, and there's this search happening for something more. The chorus goes like this: "Happy is a yuppie world. Nothing in the world could fail me now." That's an empty argument. I'm running down a life that won't cash out. I'm running down a life that won't cash out. Uh, and despite the very blunt lyrics in this song, um, I think there's, there's more going on here than meets the eye. I think it's why I'm talking to you about it, because, you know, we are a nation that believes every human being has the right to, to three things, right? Um, we talk about um, the, 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 every human being is endowed by their creator to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, happiness. Um, happiness. It, this is something that's very American to think about. It's in the water we drink. It's in the air that we breathe. Um, it's uh, the great search in many ways for life is this pursuit of happiness. Um, I can go um, and I can buy t-shirts or coffee mugs or throw pillows or, or wall art and it will say, do what makes you happy on it. Happy, uh, if you're happy and you know it, what do you do? You clap your hands, right? Um, we teach our kids from a young age um, to seek out and acknowledge happiness. In 2018, um, Yale University, you may be aware of this, they started a new class and it made the rounds because it was such an interesting new class they started. It was um, Psychology 137 or something like that. Um, But the the, the theme of the class was, um, uh, it was called A Psychology of the Good Life. It was a psychology course. The idea was that they were going to get together at Yale University in this course, they were going to track down and figure out using social science and psychology and all the best neuroscience available to us, what is it that actually makes human beings happy? In fact, that was what the students called it at Yale. They said, hey, are you in the happiness course? Did you get in? And um, the the class, when they opened it up for enrollment, they didn't know what to expect, but um, they had to cap the course at 1,200 students who were all getting to want to know what is actually going to make me happy. What does the good life mean? 
And if you're in the secular world right now, there is someone who's sort of the happiness guru making the rounds. His name is Arthur Brooks. He's a column in The Atlantic every week called How to Build a Life, um, a column pointing yourself towards happiness. Um, And in that column, one of the things he talks about is how only about one out of every three Americans considers themselves to be happy. That despite all of the modern contrivances that we have, automobiles that get us everywhere we need to go, indoor plumbing, air conditioning, indoor heat, um, uh, can openers, for Pete's sake, all of the things that are so great in the history of the world, we have everything that uh, we could possibly want, and yet the vast majority of us, two-thirds, would not consider ourselves to be happy. So let me ask you this morning, are you happy? Uh, If you know it, you can clap your hands, but you know, oh, wow, okay, that's like an Anglican amen, like, you know. Uh, you know, Baptist churches, they've said amen, I guess. But well, I'm glad to hear everybody's happy this morning. Then you don't need to listen to the sermon. Um, I'm kidding, of course. But, but there's a sense in which we're coming out of this COVID year, and happiness has, has been um, sort of in short supply. Um, we're debriefing the sermon series, right? All these themes from the past year and a half, this um, divine debrief we're calling the sermon series, the gospel in the age of COVID-19. And there's a question at, at play here, right, about Um, For a nation that is about pursuing happiness, what is it that we have left to us when the things that make us happy are no longer available to us? And so here's how I want to sort of frame our conversation today. I want to talk about happiness. Then I want to offer you an alternative to happiness that's actually better. I want to pitch to you an alternative way of being that's better than being happy. And then uh, I want to end with a word of grace and what that means for us. And that's what I want to speak to you about this morning. Um, because I am setting up happiness as a concept to take a bit of a pounding. You know, gee, Pastor Brian, why? What's the deal with happiness? Like, what's wrong with being happy? And it's like, well, well, there's nothing wrong with being happy, but, but um, there are some things that maybe would make me search for something better than happiness. Um, uh, first thing I would say is happiness is, is sort of devolved from maybe an emotional state to a buzzword now. Um, that's sort of one observation I'll put forward to you this morning. It's kind of lost its meaning um, did you just have a really nice, flavorful cup of coffee, right? I mean, great. If that's what makes you happy, go for it, right? Um, but when you talk about what makes you happy, there are good things that happen in your life where happy is not the word. Uh, I think, for example, about the birth of, of Tom and my first child. And I'm thinking, if I, as someone said, hey, man, how you doing? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy. It's like, well, that almost undercuts it, right? To say, like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, my kid was born. I'm very happy about that. It's like, oh, I, I don't know. I could say that, oh, I'm very happy with the experience that I had at McGee Hospital. I thought they treated us very well. And, you know, that's, that makes sense linguistically to us. But it's like, um, what, Brian, tell me, you've just had your first child. Happy and healthy. Mama's healthy. How are you feeling today? Happy. That, that, that doesn't really ring true. Um, so happy as a word, there are things out there which transcend happiness. It, it doesn't really fit all of our circumstances. Second thing I'll say about happiness, too, is um, happiness is something that is unmoored from the life's most significant moments, right? Um, I think uh, there's a sense in which, um, again, we talked about sort of childbirth, that sort of thing. Um, but if you, did the volume just go up really high on this uh, very unexpectedly? Let me shift that. I apologize. Um, but there's a sense in which happiness can't, like it makes sense for little things, but big things it, it doesn't make sense for. Um, There are things like um, you can be happy with your job performance, but we also say, does your job make you happy? And it's like, okay, there's there's something that isn't matching up here. 
Um, you know, happiness is something, you know, you can purchase from something from the store and be happy. And the marketing campaigns will say, hey, if you buy this, it will make you happy. But there's something devoid between sort of this pleasant feeling of happiness and a deeper meaning in life. Not all things that make you happy um, provide you with meaning. Not all things that make you happy can make you positively emotive at your very core of your being. Um, third thing I'll say about happiness is happiness is also temporary. Um, if I go to the coffee shop and I want a pumpkin spice latte, I don't drink them, but apparently everyone else does. Uh, you go to the coffee shop, you want a pumpkin spice latte, and you're sitting there drinking it, and you spill it all over your nice new sweater, your happiness is gone in an instant, right? But if you're at the coffee shop and you're there with a friend and you're having good conversation and you spill it all over yourself, uh, you don't lose that positive sense. You're like, oh, give me a second, you wipe it off and, and you're good. Happiness is temporary, um, and it can be knocked off its rocker by life's circumstances. The thing that makes you happy, um, I'm really happy now because um, at the grocery store, the, the, the white fudge Oreos are back. You know what I'm talking about? The Oreos, they dip in the white fudge. They make me very happy, um, but they can't make me happy once the package is empty, right? They're done. And so happiness, in some sense, is temporary. And so when Switchfoot says, you know, happy is a yuppie word, I think that's what they're getting at. Um, that if you're searching for happiness in life, you're, you're shooting too low. That there are things in life that last longer. There are things in life that are linked to more meaning than just your own personal happiness. Um, in fact, I did a little, little word search. Um, I use the, the ESV version of the Bible for um, church. And so if you type happiness in uh, to the search and look at the English words, um, the word happiness only appears in the Bible eight times. And every time the word happy appears in the Bible, if you look at the Hebrew, you could substitute the word blessed. Um, so happy is a really interesting word. The Bible doesn't talk about it very much. And all eight of those occasions are um, in the Old Testament. Uh, and the word happy doesn't show up in the New Testament. There's something else um, that, that shows up there. Um, that the, the, there is a greater vision. Now, full disclosure, the King James Version, happiness meant something else in like the 1600s. So it's all over the place in the King James Bible. But... In our modern translations of the Bible, this, this word happy um, is not one that shows up very often. But there's another word um, that shows up 200 times in the Bible. Uh, there's another word that shows up 200 times in both Old and New Testaments, which gets really to the heart of what the Bible would have us have instead of happiness. And that word I want to talk to you about, friends, is joy. Joy. Um, you didn't know you were getting a sermon about joy, um, I had to just sort of beat down on happiness for about 10 minutes first, right? But, but joy is what the Bible has in store for you. The, the, the vision of the Bible in terms of your positive emotional state is not happiness, but joy. Um, and so if you're a Christian and you watch the world around you sort of seeking what makes them happy, um, joy has this sort of deeper meaning and rootedness that the world doesn't always get. You can buy a throw pillow that says joy on it, and you do around Christmas time, but that's Christmas, and Christmas is a reason to have joy. But at the same time, right, if someone in the marketing community comes to you and says, you should buy these brand new bed sheets. We made them from recycled fiber. They're better than Egyptian cotton, and you can get them in 28 different colors. It will bring you so much joy if you got these new bed sheets. You'd be like, okay, you had me till the joy part. Because we recognize there's something transcendent about joy that bed sheets and pumpkin spice lattes and toys can't actually provide. Joy is deeper. Joy has more meaning. 
um, and um, people will say that they're happy with the new thing. And even though there is a historic brand of dish soap called Joy that some of you may still use, um, uh, we understand that's hyperbole. No one actually buys the Joy brand of dish soap and thinks to themselves, I now have meaning and fulfillment in my life in a way that I didn't have before. I mean, I guess maybe if that is you, I'm, I'm sorry for kind of, you know, rain on your parade here, but I mean, it's just, just dish soap, guys. I mean, come on. Anyway, uh, so happiness, right, is unmoored from life's most important moments. When Tom arrives and, and people ask me how I'm doing, if I tell them I'm happy, they give me a sideways look, but if I tell them I'm overjoyed, uh, then that makes a lot more sense. Happiness may be temporary, right, but joy has staying power. Um, people often observe that when your happiness, right, again, if you spill the pumpkin spice latte and that's where your happiness is, you know, um, well, that's done. But if you've got your friend there and you're connecting in a meaningful way um, and that's bringing you joy uh, to reconnect like that, then your pumpkin spice latte spilling on your new sweater is not going to do anything. I had some joy this weekend. I reconnected with um, uh, some of my old college friends I hadn't seen in over a decade. And it was a real gift, and uh, there, was, there was no happiness about it. Um, it was so cool to see these guys who I loved so deeply when I was in college and to see what the Lord has done in their lives since. And we all felt the same way. We were all overjoyed to be back in contact with one another again. So joy is something bigger and better than happiness, right? It lasts for a long time. It's not just a buzzword. Uh, the marketers can't sort of entice you with joy like they can with happiness, um, despite what the Park Church families, you know, come on, get happy, right? Um, the scripture says joy is where it's at. And that is the promise we have as Christians. But the problem with joy, if you really want joy, um, there's, there's a problem with it, which is that joy has a prerequisite that is maybe not so great. Because one of the things that scripture does in a really unique way is it links our joy with suffering. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to make that case to you now. That Part of the reason why I think the world focuses on happiness, the bar is low, um, but there, you can have happiness and, and there's no suffering involved. But for joy, Scripture says there's going to be some suffering involved for you to have this deeper, meaningful, positive experience. It's a very deep paradox. But that's what uh, John gets into in John 16 today, right? Um, what does he talk about when he talks about um, sort of, he compares the vision of his death and resurrection to childbirth. He says this, I say to you, um, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, he says to the disciples, the eve before his crucifixion, um, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus is saying, hey, I've got joy and it is in store for you, friends. But first, there's going to be some suffering and I'm going to suffer and die on a cross and you're going to suffer the loss of me for a couple of days. But it's worth it. It's worth it. The crux of our psalm today as well, Psalm 30, right? This is a psalm where King David, uh, he pairs joy and suffering because on the one hand, what, what does he say? He says, um, though the sorrow may last for a night, joy comes with the morning. And the context here is King David um, is, is, is sharing this psalm 
uh, from his perspective of being a leader and saying, I've messed up, I've done some things wrong, God's sort of in correction mode with me and my people right now, thank God that he allows repentance because even though this time of correction and hardship is coming to me, I know that after it's all done, things are going to be wonderful. I love this vision, right? For you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Turn my mourning into dancing. Um, so David is suffering the consequences of his failures as a king and, and as a human being too, as a, just a person living on earth. But David is taking joy in the fact that God forgives and so all of his troubles will be over. And that joy that he's looking forward to is giving him the endurance to navigate the season of his own consequences. But maybe there's nowhere else in scripture where this link between suffering and joy is fleshed out more fully than in Hebrews 11 and in Hebrews 12, this great All Saints Day passage. You know, Hebrews 11, if you're familiar with that part of the Bible, is just a whole list of these great Old Testament heroes, Moses, Abraham, um, so many of these great people. And the author of Hebrews says, look at the faith in God's promises they had and look at what they were able to accomplish because of it. So we get to our reading today, um, and the author of Hebrews is going through and saying, look, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. So he says, look, all these Old Testament saints, right? And we're not even talking about the New Testament saints. We're talking about Old Testament saints. These were people who experienced torture and death and poverty and exile. They were mistreated in so many different ways. And yet they believed in God's promise so much that they could endure the suffering that they had. It's no surprise that Jesus continues in that tradition with our great sort of concluding verses from that passage. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says, since we are, so, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, of the throne of God. Did you catch that? Jesus um, endured the cross, despised the shame. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He did it for the joy that was set before him. That there was something about the completion of this mission of suffering that brought Jesus himself joy. The cross, of course, was suffering, but the resurrection, the salvation of the world, it brought joy, not just to us, but to him. And I think you can see this pattern in your own life. I, I don't, I know most of you, I know the things that bring you great suffering, things that bring you real joy as well. They, I think, you know, if you're a parent today, right, you know how hard it is to raise a kid. Um, it's bad for your finances. It's bad for your serenity. It's bad for your marriage, says the social science. People who raise kids just aren't happy as the rest of the world understands happiness. And yet there is so much joy in parenting. There's so much meaning. There's something that is good and positive that sinks down into one's bones. And again, maybe I'm speaking out of turn. I've been only been doing it for two years here. Um, but there's a sense in which, yeah, this is a different level of life um, than, um, than, than happiness. Poopy diapers, sleepless nights, screaming toddlers. It's all joy. 
It's not happiness. Some of you find deep joy and meaning in your work, and that's good. God made us to work. He gave us gifts that we could express them in our vocations, right? And when your gifts match up to the work that you're doing and you're just feeling so good and there's something deep in your spirit that's being tickled and encouraged by the work that you're doing, we find meaning in our work. But that doesn't mean we don't suffer for the work that we do. The work that we do is hard. Um, We're not just sort of, you know, tiptoeing through the tulips when our work gives us meaning. We're actually doing hard, hard, hard things. We suffer for our work. Um, Joy is when your spouse brings you soup in bed when you are sick, right? You're suffering, you're weak, you're miserable, you're tired, but there's another human being in your life that brings you a bowl of soup and a piece of toast, and you're sitting there and you are not happy at all. You're feeling miserable, you're feeling terrible, and yet um, when somebody comes to you and actually brings you these things and you recognize there's a partnership and you don't have to sort of do things alone, man, there's some real joy in that sick bed, isn't there? There's some real serenity that can come from that. Um, I've often noticed that the happiest married couples, many, maybe this is not you and you're very happy and you know, that's okay, but I've noticed a ton of married couples who tell me that in the first few years of their marriage, they lived in borderline poverty together. Um, They had maybe a whole lot of debt from student loans. They didn't have any family to help them. Maybe they eloped and just sort of broke some social ties. Um, They they found the rattiest apartment in town. They had the um, the air mattress because they couldn't afford a a full bed yet. They had to cut back on their spending because one spouse's job was in danger of not being contracted the next year. And and there's something so strange about that because when when people tell me these stories, they, they always look back with a smile. Like, yeah, we were miserable, but we were in love. And there's this weird sort of perverse link between suffering and joy in moments like that, where you can say, I went through this terrible, terrible, terrible thing, and yet, for whatever reason, I have more love in my life and more joy in my life because of it. Um, One recent story that I read about that kind of gets into the heart of this comes from the humanitarian organization Samaritan's Purse. They have share the story of um, a mayor who was a Christian in Iraq in 2015, and that's when ISIS was really invading and, and sort of making a push in that region. He was a Christian in Iraq, and uh, he shares this story about joy and suffering coming together. Um, ISIS had arrived in his community, and at first they were cordial, but then they said, if you're a Christian, you have to leave. You have 48 hours to pack your things and get out. And um, a mayor was hesitant to do so. He didn't want to leave family, friends, and, and the like behind. But um, he had this encounter, he, he's seeing an ISIS, and I'm reading to you this encounter from Samaritan's Purse. Seeing an ISIS fighter on the street, Amir asked, who are you? What do you want from us? And the man challenged Amir to become Muslim so that he would not have to leave his home, his business, and his car behind. You win my car, said Amir. I have a company for cutting stone and marble. You win it, but you also lose because I have my Jesus, and I love Jesus. He went on to tell the man, that Jesus taught his followers not to store up treasure on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven. Therefore, I'm not sad, said Mayor. You are the loser. I am happy. I forgive you. What did you say, said the ISIS fighter. Yes, I forgive you because Jesus told us to forgive our enemies. He told us in the New Testament to love our enemies. I love you. I forgive you. Take everything. I will die for my Jesus. What are you saying, asked the fighter. Who is your Jesus? You want to see him, asked Mayor. Look into my face and you will see Jesus. Angry, the ISIS fighter demanded that Amir leave. He said, if I see you Saturday at noon, I will take your head. Okay, I'll leave, Amir said. Congratulations on my house. Congratulations on my company. And he was gone, fleeing across the border in the next day. 
So even though a mayor says that he is, no one would say a mayor said you know, necessarily that he was happy, but we recognize the power of joy at work when we see it. He's so enamored with Jesus that his business, his company, his car, his social connections, they didn't matter anymore. He was experiencing a really unique form of suffering that many of us would never uh, hope to imagine, and yet he has this deep joy. It's something that the scholar N.T. Wright talks about. He's the English um, Anglican scholar and theologian, and he, he has a teaching on this where he says, Jesus underwent suffering before entering into joy. And Christians, what we do is we begin to see our own sufferings in light of Jesus, that when we suffer, we're not far or distant from God. We're actually very much like God in that regard. And so N.T. Wright goes on to say, there's something about suffering for the faith that brings us joy. And so friends, you can pair this up together. Suffering and joy come together. It's like, no wonder the world doesn't want joy because of what you need to have joy first. And so to that end, a couple of of encouragements, gracious words for us about our COVID season and joy, and then we'll conclude. Um, Over the past year, we've experienced suffering on many levels. There's the suffering that many of you had when you caught the virus itself, uh, something that you have experienced. Some of us have had the social suffering of quarantines and isolation and lockdowns. Some of us uh, underwent the economic sufferings of losing our jobs, laser shortages, supply chain issues, um, trying to find workers. There's the relational suffering we've experienced as people we've been very close with. We've duped it out together in ways that embarrass us both over um, masks and vaccine mandates. There's this vocational suffering when our work is hitting the wall and everything that we enjoyed about giving us meaning at work, we had to go remote and we're feeling unskilled to navigate the barriers COVID has placed in front of us. Would it change your perspective, the thought exercise here, would it change your perspective to know um, that the pandemic, with all of the suffering it has caused, has just given us a deep um, and important precursor to the, the emotion of joy? Would it change your perspective, perhaps, over the past year and a half to see that the, the, the COVID pandemic has given us a raised bed through which the flowers of joy could perhaps bloom? I wonder what that might look like for you. Again, we can look around the world and find very little happiness, but for those who love Jesus, we have something better than happiness that doesn't depend on the seasons or the circumstances or the pandemics of life. Um, uh, happiness is a yuppie word, but joy is a Jesus word. Um, the happiness class at Yale, by the way, um, they originally wanted to teach that class uh, in the, uh, the Bedell Chapel on Yale's crowns. And the Bedell Chapel could hold 800 people. It's an imposing basilica of a stone church with beautiful stained glass windows. That's where they wanted to teach the class in happiness. But too many people wanted it. So they couldn't fit them all there and had to move it to a lecture hall in another building. The irony is not lost on me that as the secular world seeks happiness, they move away from the chapel because the class was not about joy. I think they would have had a better chance to fit in the chapel if they had taught about that instead. So how might your sufferings be made redemptive by the kingdom of God? Could we dare hope that the sufferings of the past season could be overshadowed by a joy that comes from Jesus and the gospel that we receive? Do we dare believe that we could take COVID and respond to it like a mayor? You win COVID, take it all. You win my family's stability, you win my vocational successes, you win my community's peace, you win my vacation plans, you win my political ideologies, but you also lose because I love my Jesus. Is that something that we have 
uh, the audacity to think could possibly happen. Friends, I cannot make you happy, but I can point you to the source of our joy. I can point you to the crucified and risen Jesus, the divine embodiment of the soul of heaven who has experienced the great joy of the resurrection and is seated at the right hand of God, finishing up his plans to save the world. And I tell you about him, friends, so that your joy may be made complete. That in the trappings of this world, they cannot compare to the joys of our master, who, as our text says today, gives a joy that cannot be taken away. I offer you this joy in Jesus' name. Amen. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. Lay down in grief. Oh, with the keys. Fell on that day. Firstborn of the slain. The man Jesus Christ today. Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.